I would like to make a few comments. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. We see Americans hating each other, fighting each other, killing each other at home. There is a religious war going on in this country. It is a cultural war. This war is for the soul of America. Because of the way this society is organized, you have to expect that there are going to be such explosions. Our side, our side, our side. We are a people in a quandary about the present. We are a people in search of our future. And as we see and hear these things, millions of Americans cry out in anguish. Did we come all this way for this? It all seems a long way from a time when politics was a national passion and sometimes even fun. a larger scale to fulfill the promise of America. We are met here as Americans, not as Democrats or Republicans, to solve that problem. Welcome to the Pothole Problem Podcast. I'm Shannon Emerson, and I'm the executive producer of the Pothole Problem Podcast, and I am uh, here to interview your host, Jack Miller. Welcome, Jack. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So let's uh, talk about the first season. It was the very first season of the Pothole Problem podcast. What did you take from it? What did you learn from it? You know, we're sitting here together. We're actually in the studio together. And the first season, all of my interviews were conducted right here in the White Tiger studio with my guests. And that was starting last fall. In fact, I started my first interviews in, in early September. That seems like a really long time ago because... The only reason that we're sitting in the studio together is because we're quarantined together. At this point, I'm not going to be doing anything but phone interviews for a while. And this entire season, spring season 2020, will be done as phone interviews. So thinking back to season one, that's the first thing that comes to my mind is that I got to sit here across from people. And I, I've now done two phone interviews, and they've been really interesting and great, and I've taken a lot out of them. But it is different to not be able to sit across from somebody and have a conversation into microphones, but to be on the telephone. So I think back to season one, and I think I was more physically connected to my guests and I'm not now. And that's a change that a lot of people are getting used to in a lot of different environments. And are you feeling like the interviewing over the phone, do you feel like you're gonna be able to tell the same kinds of stories this season without the face-to-face -face interviews? I'm hoping to be able to have the same kind of exploration where I talk to people about what their experience as a human being living inside the political world is like. And so far I've done two, so I don't have a little bit of experience in it, but I have felt like even though it's a little bit disconnecting to not be able to sit and, and look right at somebody and respond to their body language uh, as well as their words, that the same kind of stuff is coming out, that there is this desire on the part of my guests to share what they're experience in the political world has been like. And I think that it's actually an interesting time because people have a lot of time to reflect on what their lives have been like, because now they have one, a lot more time. And two, they're seeing it from a lot of people of an isolated and self-quarantined perspective. So I, I think that I can continue doing the same thing. And I imagine that people's sensibilities are going to be different as I move through this next month and a half of interviews. People who've been longer self-isolated are going to have even more of that reflection on their lives. The intention of exploring the human experience inside the political world shouldn't be any different on the phone interviews. Right, it just might become a little more personal because we're all experiencing 
a very similar thing right now. And also people who are involved in politics, they're actually sidelined. So the first interview, the one for this episode, is with a woman who is running a political campaign. And you can't run a political campaign in the traditional way anymore because you can't send people out to knock doors. You can't have volunteers to come in and man a phone bank. No rallies. No rallies, no no in-person fundraisers. So no events. Yeah. yeah. Politics is changing for people who are doing it on the ground. And so our, my first interview is with a person whose their job is just fundamentally changed. It's not even just a matter of, oh, I work from home now. When you are running a political campaign, working from home means that your job is actually quite different. And so yeah. we don't talk about that in the interview, actually, but it for sure is part of the background of where she's sitting at that moment. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to hear this season will go through into June? End of May, or I think June 4th is the last episode of this season. So it'll be an, definitely an interesting time because you'll be doing all these interviews between now and then. I'm interviewing a woman who's involved with the census, trying to make sure that underserved and undercounted populations get counted. And the census is a very, you know, you can do this. We did the census online. You can do it online. You can do it by mail. But also there's a, there has traditionally in the past been to make sure that everybody is captured or as many people as possible, some door knocking. And so this person, uh, Esperanza Hernandez, who I'll interview in a couple of weeks, she's involved in an effort that it also is changing. It's hard enough as it is. To well, sure. Right. Well, I mean, the census is probably going, is getting buried right now. It was already going to, it was already a hill to climb to try to make sure everyone's counted. And now it's getting buried with all the other news. It's not less important just because there's a pandemic that's going to make it more difficult to do an already difficult job. And then I'm I'm interviewing a woman who's running for judge position here in Oregon, which is already an unusual type of political campaign because judges are not allowed to raise money directly. They're not allowed to talk about their issues or their stances. They're not allowed to do a lot of things that traditional campaigns do. And so she's running for her first judicial position. She's a lawyer. And it was already a challenging endeavor that has now become even more challenging. So I'm really looking forward to talking to her and seeing what her perspective is. So a lot of different guests in the spring. All right, well, I think that I'm gonna just get right into the interview now. Appreciate you coming into the studio and helping me with the introduction for my spring season. It feels nice. I like to change things up every season just a little bit to keep it fresh for myself. This may become a regular feature of the spring. Of course, regular listeners know that my son Zane is occasionally an guest interviewer interviewing me and we're going to definitely have some zane back this season but for now episode 22 i interview amy rathfelder who is in fact a former student of mine at portland state university but she is right now the campaign manager for portland mayor ted wheeler's 2020 re-election she has served as a policy advisor for him for most of his first term she went to graduate school in washington dc she has actually worked as a staffer at the local, the state, and the federal level. So she brings a really varied perspective to politics, and she talks about her perspective from all of those different areas. So without saying anything further, I'm just going to get right into the interview. I have on the phone with me today, Amy Rathfelder. Welcome to the show, Amy. Thanks. Glad to be here. You are currently the campaign manager for Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler. He's running for re-election. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got to this position I'll give you the the short version. It's a lot of long, windy paths to ending up in a job like this. But I've been wanting to work in government and politics since I was a really little kid. My parents were big into activism and sort of was on that path at an early age. I fell into campaign work. I got my start in campaign work when I was in college, working on the Obama campaign in 2012, and fell in love with the process of campaigning. 
I will say that I, you know, it's not an, an easy industry to work in. There's a lot of variability and not too much stability. And um, it burns you out if you do it for long enough. So a lot of people get their start in campaigns like I did and they move into, they did what I did, which is I got my start in campaigns. And then I went to school and I went to grad school and got a master's in political communication and policy work. And then I went to work for Mayor Wheeler. I lived in Washington, D.C. for about a year and a half during my master's. And then I moved back home to Portland to come work for the mayor and his official office. And I was working on sustainability and land use policy, which is what I went to school for. And then I went back over to the campaign side for his reelect effort. I was originally his deputy campaign manager. Um, and then my boss at the time got a great offer from Nike. And so she transitioned out of that role and I took over. So you got kind of a battlefield promotion into campaign manager. Yes. And, you know, I it's been an honor, you know, battlefield promotion or not. I know that I'm capable and qualified and, and happy to do the work. I think a lot of folks in these positions, it is what they're passionate about, but it's also something that you have to go through other doors to get here and, and build a lot of relationships to get here. And it's a little bit of hard work and a little bit of luck. So um, I ended up with both and I'm very honored. So you came to this particular position from policy work for the mayor. Like a campaign has an end date. There's an election day and you work your butt off until then. And then you either win or you don't win. But policymaking, there is no end date. The long, slow building of coalitions and working on ideas and kind of taking that time. How do you deal with that long-term effort? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Again, you know, I think... For a lot of us, the key in life is to find, I mean, it's sort of cliche, but you chase something that you love and ultimately it doesn't matter if there's an end date or not, you are fulfilled just by doing the work. You know, for me, I went to school because I wanted to be educated in how to formulate and communicate mostly around environmental and sustainability policy, because if I had to pick one issue that I was super interested in, it would be sustainability issues. I see climate change as the number one threat, even in these COVID times, the number one threat to our way of life here on this planet. And I have a dad who is an environmental engineer. I grew up hiking and being outside basically for the majority of my childhood. And it's just something I'm really passionate about, something that I wanted to make into my career. So burnout, the government burnout. It's a thing for everybody, but if you are committed and you're driven and you're motivated by what you're doing, you don't really ever get burned out. You find meaning and joy even in the worst days in what you're doing. I know it sounds kind of cliche, but I think that's the answer. No, it doesn't sound cliche at all. I do think that there's a preconceived notion in the public that people who are involved in politics are largely in it for the power or whatever it happens to be. Is your experience that the people who are working in these positions, both in campaign and in policymaking, do they have this level of commitment that you're saying is necessary? What's your take on people who work in these positions and their relationship to the causes that they're working for? I think the honest answer is that there is a little of both. You know, I think in every line of work, you have people who are there for, for the right and the wrong reasons. Um, politics is no different. I will say, I mean, I'm an optimist. I have only ever been surrounded when I worked for the city and in this campaign specifically. I've only ever been surrounded by the very best, most hardworking and talented group of people that I've had the pleasure of working with. I don't find a power grab mentality in, in any of the current city council offices or the staffs of any of the principals holding elected office in Portland right now. I think that we are very lucky in the city to have really dedicated thousands of folks who are working in the public sector and who are there for 
only the very best reasons. But I think on a broader scale, of course, there are folks that are not there just because they love the work. They're there because when you're in those positions, you do have an outsized impact and you do have an outsized influence and you do have an outsized amount of power. And I think that's a big draw, especially once you get there. It's sort of this immediate thing. I was at an event with Commissioner Joanne Hardesty last week and she gave a speech about how there's no learning curve in, especially under this form of government in our city, there's no learning curve. You get in on day one and you're in the deep end. That can be really hard and really scary, whether you're a principal or you're just on your staffer. You learn very quickly that uh, you have access to a lot of influence if you want it. So yeah, politics is definitely an industry where folks who just want power can go and get it. But it's also, I choose to see the good. It's an industry where you can have a lot of influence and you can use it for the best things in the world if you want to. I think Portland is is lucky to have the latter. So that's your Portland experience. You mentioned earlier that you went to school in D.C. and national politics is certainly where most people get their impressions of what politics are like. Can you contrast Portland politics with what you saw when you were in D.C. in terms of the kind of mentality? Yeah, yeah, it's it's two different worlds, I'll tell you. I've actually had the pleasure of working at every level of government. When I was finishing up my bachelor's, I did almost a year at the state. So I worked in Salem for a while in the governor's office. So I've had the privilege of being able to see the differences at each level of our public sector. If we're talking about D.C. specifically, I think the short answer is that it's just a different mentality. You know, a lot of people in D.C. are there because of politics. It is what they go there for. It's what they leave because of. And I think that the vibe and the mentality in the city and on the hill is just it's sort of worlds away from what it is in Portland and cities like Portland. In D.C., it's much more cutthroat. People are there for themselves. And I think when you're outside of that bubble and you're in a city like Portland, the reasons for being involved or wanting to work in the public sector become different. It's really easy to look at the federal government and be like, well, people there are just there because they want the title or they want the power. And, you know, there is absolutely a grain of truth in that the contrast between a city like D.C. and a city like Portland is stark. One of the things for sure, I went to college in Washington, D.C., and I was around all those people who were there for that reason. And one, it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy where the people who go there, as you say, they go there for the power or the position or they're there for themselves. And then when they find themselves surrounded by other people like that, then there's no other pathway except to leave. And so for the people who stay, they actually either enjoy or thrive in that environment. I think the other thing that was is different, I've visited D.C. a number of times with my kids over the years, and the people who are making those decisions, they're not living in the communities that they're making decisions about, whereas everyone else in politics is actually living in the community where the decisions that they're making are having an impact. That strikes me as another reason why it's more likely that people are going to go into politics at the local or the state level for the right reasons. I think that's absolutely correct. I think accountability is a really key word in politics. You know, we talk about holding our elected officials accountable. And and I think it's really hard to do that when you have, you know, I mean, we live on the West Coast and Washington, D.C. is all the way at the other end of the country. How easy do you think it is for our federal representation to come and go and have town halls and actually be held accountable, like in front of their local constituencies? It's not easy. That's the thing. And, you know, if I'm honest, having said earlier, I have had the privilege of working at every level of government, 
working for city government is by far the wildest, craziest, most intense, most like weirdest, most fun I've ever had in government because it is the the upside of it is that you are confronted every day with your successes. One of the coolest things I got to work on in Mayor Wheeler's office was a single-use plastics policy. We did a big, long stakeholder process. It took about a year and a half. We tapped into the business community, into the environmental community, um, into just the general constituency around Portland to work through that policy and got it through council unanimously. And um, every time I go into a restaurant now and I see the signs that say we don't serve single-use plastics, cutlery, or straws unless it's upon request, I know that that sign is there because of work I did. On the flip side, I have been in too many city council meetings to count where I've been yelled at, I've been called names, I've been every single thing under the sun until Sunday. <laughs> I've seen it all. And it's, I mean, it's the, it's a, a side effect of working within closely hands-on with the community that you are serving every single day. Our federal representation, they just don't have that same opportunity. Whether or not they put themselves in you know, environments and positions where they can get more of that experience, that's their decision. But they don't have, just by the nature of their work, they don't have the same type of access that local elected officials and their staffs do. Right away, there's a different dynamics. It's easy to have, you know, a different motivation, I think, when you're at the federal level versus when you're sort of in the trenches in a local government. You're listening to the Pothole Problem podcast, created by White Tiger Productions. At White Tiger Productions, we create experiences. If you have an idea for a podcast, a workshop, or a show of any kind, we'll help you go from concept to execution. We provide creative direction and production support. We've got a podcast studio, writers and storytellers, sound engineers and editors, designers, videographers, hosts, creative coaches, everything you need to manifest your creative potential. You name it or even vaguely describe it, and we'll take you from dream to finished product. White Tiger Productions. You can do what you think, and we can help you. Visit us at youcandowhatyouthink.com and tell us what you're thinking about. I'm going to now get into the question that I ask all of my guests, which is what is something that used to outrage you and no longer does? And most importantly, why the change? Oh, man. So first of all, I think that's a fantastic question. And I think everybody should think about this, especially in the context of civic engagement and politics. For me, the answer is compromise. And I'll explain a little bit what I mean by that. So when I was growing up, and I was taking classes like AP government and U.S. government history um, and learning about the way our society and government was structured. The thing that fascinated me was that when the United States was founded, one of the things that made us different was that we believed that the absence of government was bad and that the implementation of a democracy in which theoretically, you know, we're all equal. We have one vote. And, you know, that wasn't that wasn't necessarily how we were founded, but it's what we're working toward. We were founded with the belief that government was good. And I took that optimism. I was an adolescent in the Obama years and I grew up with that in my mind and the coinciding messages of hope and change and belief. That was sort of what permeated my adolescence and what made me fall in love with the processes of government. I took that belief and I took the opportunity, what I thought of as the opportunity to work in government and politics, as the opportunity to stand by something that I believed in. Government gives us an outlet to fight for principles that we believe in, whether it's through a protest, through a testimony at city council, through letter writing or campaigning or, you know, whatever else. There are a multitude of outlets to make your voice heard if you go looking for them in our government. As I've grown up, I've realized that it's actually sort of backwards. The way that the most effective 
and most sustainable work gets done is through the medium of compromise. And that's not something I would have believed when I was 16, 17, 18. I believe that when I got to wherever I was going to go in government, I would stand by my principles and dig my heels in. I'm a pretty stubborn person and I wouldn't give up until I won. And now as more of a grown-up political and government operative, if I could leave people with one message, it's that digging your heels, well, it might feel good for a second, it's not actually what translates into the policies that make our society function. The policies that make our society function are built on the long hours and on the lengthy stakeholder processes and on listening to folks that you don't agree with and on working toward compromise. If I could answer that question in a shorter way, I would say that I never would have thought that fighting for common ground would be something that I would ever value quite as much as I do now. And I think that especially right now, we live in an era that's defined by tribalism and political extremism, and common ground is hard to find. If we're going to move forward sustainably and collectively, we need to get back to a place in our national political discourse where we're working toward compromise. So that's my soapbox answer. (laughs) That's great. Now, I want to ask you about how when you were younger and you were outraged by compromise, what kind of experiences did you have with it that gave you that outrage? Or was it just theoretical? Like you just didn't like the idea of compromise? It was theoretical, mostly. I so appreciate the question. I don't know if I was ever really like, quote, outraged by the idea of compromise when I was 16. Outraged is a pretty strong word. I would say it was something that I hadn't really had enough experience with, but the idea of giving up on my own principles and beliefs in order to, you know, accept a lesser version of them or listen to someone that was in direct opposition to them, that was something that left a bad taste in my mouth. I I mean, I, I went into my line of work because I wanted to have an outlet to express those beliefs and those values. And what I learned is that I still get to The beauty of it is when you find someone that has a different set of values and a different set of beliefs and you're able to work through those differences to find an area that you both agree on and start building from there, that's what government's about. What do you think are the most important skills and attitudes to have to be able to do that kind of bridge building and that finding common ground that you've described as the thing that you now see is the the best path, not being uncompromising in your principles? What, What do you need to do to be able to do that? You have experience now, so share some of your experience. You don't need a fancy degree. You don't need to move 3,000 miles away and go to grad school or go into thousands of dollars in student debt like I did. All you need is an open mind and a willingness to listen. We are so far into this era of tribalism that oftentimes we we live in an age where there's like dating websites for people that only want to go on dates with folks that have the same set of political beliefs as them. And that's really sad. I understand it. Don't get me wrong. Echo chambers are comforting and they make us feel better about ourselves. Nobody likes knowing that the person we're interacting with or talking to thinks that what we're saying is wrong. It's a deeply uncomfortable feeling for a person. But if we're going to make real progress, we have to be willing to grapple with that feeling and we have to be willing to work past it. So all you need is an open mind and a willingness to be okay with hearing someone out. Now, I have a tough question for you, which is what do you do when you're confronted with somebody who doesn't have an open mind? You can't just obviously yell at them. You need to have an open mind. That's not going to work. What have you learned are effective techniques for confronting people who have closed minds and you know that you have to get to a place where you both have open minds. What do you do? 
Yeah, no, it's a good question. Believe me, I've met more than my fair share of those people. It's really hard. It sort of depends on the type of person you're talking to. But if you're talking to somebody that really just does not want to listen to you, the best advice I can give, there's no one size fits all solution to that situation. But in the past, what's worked for me is just taking the high road. Don't stoop to that level. Know that even though it might not feel super satisfying walking away from a conversation where you really want to listen and be open-minded and the person you're talking to doesn't, just acknowledge how they feel and say, well, I'm really sorry you feel that way. You know, if you ever get to a place where you do want to talk about this with me, let me know. We can have a conversation. But there's not much else you can do. We're all in control of our own responses and our own actions. And um, if someone just really is not wanting to engage in the way you do, you can't force them. All you can do is control yourself. My best advice is acknowledge the way they're feeling, even if you don't agree with it, and and take the high road. And um, maybe that action alone will eventually help that person get to a place where they might feel comfortable coming back to you and talking about it. Well, that's great. I think that is good advice. It's maybe not super satisfying because it's not necessarily a fix and it requires patience to be able to do that. But sometimes acknowledging that the technique that's the best is in fact very difficult and long-term. That's a good acknowledgement. I really appreciate that. I just want to ask you one last question. Is there anything that now really outrages you, that riles you up now? Or has your experience in politics kind of given you a level of perspective and equanimity that allows you to move through things that maybe you disapprove of or that don't fit your principles, but to not have them rile you up? I think it's more the latter. You know, I'm, I'm old enough now and I've seen enough that there's some stuff that really just grinds my gears. If you're going to survive in this line of work, you have to, on some level, have a, I'm just going to let it roll off my back attitude. Otherwise, you'll drive yourself crazy. That being said, I, I think that the era of politics we live in is one that is sort of rife with misinformation. And sometimes the general populace is not ill-informed or not willing to be informed, but it's just, it disappoints me when somebody chooses to engage with me, especially um, in a negative way, and they immediately default to telling me I'm wrong or telling me, you know, I'm not doing enough or telling me I'm doing too much when it's clear to me that they don't actually understand what my position entails or, you know, by extension, what my, my boss's position entails. And they're coming to me just wanting to be fired up about something. And you know what? I totally get that. But it's just a bummer, I think. It doesn't outrage me, and I totally understand where those folks are coming from. But I think if there's anything that's challenging for me in this industry, sometimes it's it's that reality. It's the reality of folks that are just wanting to yell at me and scream at me or yell and scream about something. So for you, it's a challenge to have to see people's outrage, actually, and live in it. Even though you understand where it comes from and you have, it sounds like you have a high level of empathy for them but it's still pretty challenging. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I sound like a broken record, but no, I am absolutely not outraged by the fact that someone wants to yell at me or someone's mad at the candidate I work for, the principal I work for, and they want to scream at me about it. Scream at me all day long. I'm a political operative. I am more than used to it. It's okay. And I, I do have empathy for it. Anger, it's like any other emotion. When you express it and it comes out sometimes and you calm down, you feel better. Sure. Even when you understand somebody else's emotions, it doesn't necessarily mean it's easy to cope with them. I definitely appreciate the challenge that you face as a person you know, in the trenches. And as you say, you're here in Portland and the impacts that you're having, both positive and negative, you're living inside that community. So you see it and feel it in a very direct way. Well, I really appreciate you spending time with me on the phone today. And I think that you've given me and my listeners a lot to think about. And uh, thanks for coming on the show, Amy. I have one more thing to say. 
assuming that our, our elections do not get moved, everybody please make sure and vote on May 19th. Absolutely. Thanks, Jack. Okay, well, that is episode 22 of the Pothole Problem Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Miller, and I'm grateful, as always, for you to be listening. Next week, I have an interview that actually I recorded before the pandemic happened. This is an interview that was recorded in my office about a month and a half ago. Liz Darby, who is a student of mine currently, is a former healthcare researcher and administrator for the federal government. She began working during the Carter administration, and then she became, during the 1990s, a healthcare lobbyist. That'll be next week. The week after that is another interview, and the last of the interviews that I recorded before going to the phone interview format. That's Peter Toll. He's the campaign coordinator for the Clackamas County Democratic Party. He talked an awful lot about the kind of face-to-face campaigning that is totally suspended right now, and he's actually guest lecturing for my campaigns class, though now what a guest lecture means is that I'm going to have another interview with him, and I'm going to talk to him on the telephone about what it's like to be a campaign coordinator in a world where you can't actually do the kinds of things that many campaigns do, which is send people out to knock on doors to have rallies, to have fundraisers, to meet with constituents and win their votes the good old-fashioned face-to-face kind of way, which in the interview in two weeks, Peter talks about how really it's at most levels of politics, that's still how it goes down. Neighbors talking to each other, people talking to each other at work, people actually connecting in that very face-to-face way that right now we do not have the option to do. So that'll be the next couple of weeks, our interviews that were recorded before I went into self-quarantine before the phone interview became the backbone of not only my podcast, but I imagine lots and lots of podcasts around the nation. As always, I want to thank my guest, Amy Rathfelder. I want to thank my listeners. Definitely want to thank executive producer Shannon Emerson. She's going to be coming back, I'm sure, to be doing more intro interviews for me. And now, as always, and still, despite the conditions... We have a song to go out on. This is Jesus Gonna Be Here Soon, recorded right here in the White Tiger Studio last June 7th by Dan Blaker and Chuck Massey. Thanks for listening. Bye.
been so good.